All right, well, let's get started. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Uh, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into our lesson for tonight. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for this night. Thank you for the chance we have to come as a church family and to open up your word, Lord, and to discuss this topic of our emotions and how we can control them. And help us, Lord, tonight that we would learn something from your word. Help us to have a uh, biblical approach as we approach this subject, Lord, and just speak to our hearts. And we'll thank you for it, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to spend the first few minutes just uh, doing a quick recap of last week for those of you who weren't there or for those of you just kind of for us to kind of refresh our minds to all get on the same page. And so we are talking about dealing with your feelings. And so if we're talking about feelings, we said last week that we're going to be using the word feelings and the word emotion. We're going to be using them interchangeably. Uh, You may define them differently, but we're going to define them the same way for this series. And we defined an emotion as a feeling that results in physical Oh, I'm jumping ahead here. Uh, a feeling that results in physical and psychological changes that influence thought and behavior. A feeling that results in physio- physical and psychological changes that influence thought and behavior. We said this, that emotions are triggered when what we believe and what we value come into contact. We used the example last week of uh, someone who values security. And if we value security and we believe that being married or being in a relationship is the way to achieve that security, then we will have an emotion perhaps of frustration or maybe a lack of value or self-worth or sadness or discouragement if we're not in a relationship or married because what we believe uh, in being married equals security and what we value is that security has kind of collided and given us an emotional response. We said this, that emotions are rooted in both our godly nature and our sinful nature which means they can either move us towards God or away from God. And because of that, it's important for us to be careful about our emotions. And we think about our emotions dealing with our feelings. There's one word that we really want to central in on, and that word is simply this, control. It's a matter of control when it comes to our emotions. It's not a matter of elimination. It's not a matter of suppression. It's not a matter of listening to. It's a matter of control. And as followers of God, as children of God, There's two specific ways that we want to be controlled, and one is specifically spirit-controlled. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the idea of being filled with the Spirit is that he would have complete control over our life, and we know from Galatians chapter 5 that one of the fruits from being filled with the Spirit is that we would be temperate or self-controlled, and so from that spirit control then comes a self-control. We said this, that control over our emotions equals control over our actions. And in turn, control over our actions equals control over our life. And so if we want to have control over our lives and our actions and the decisions we make, it's important to have control over our emotions, both spirit control and self-control. And then quickly, our three points from last week. Number one was this. Emotions are a blessing, not a curse. This course is not fodder for you to be able to say, I can just suppress my emotions or I don't have to be emotional or I can tell my wife she can't be emotional. (laughs) That's not the goal of the course. In fact, emotions are a blessing from God. They are part of his nature in us. We saw that God experiences emotions. Jesus on earth experienced emotions. We saw that the Holy Spirit can grieve because of our sin in Ephesians chapter 4. And so we see that God has given us emotions and they're they're to enhance our life. They're to make it better. Life without emotions, without joy or peace or love would not be a life that we'd want to live. And so emotions are a blessing and not a curse. Number two, emotions are gauges. They're not guides. Just like your car or your vehicle has gauges on it that tells you what's going on under the hood, emotions tell us what's going on inside. They give us information when they trigger that tells us what we believe 
what we value. And so it's important for us to recognize those emotions when they do trigger, but we shouldn't always act upon the information that they give us. They're simply gauges, not always guides. And then thirdly, we discuss this. Emotions are real, but not always right. So the pastor Holland says, sometimes feelings are strong, but wrong. And so in our life, it's important not to discount our emotions or try to tell us that those don't exist or they're not real because they are very real. They feel very real, but it doesn't always mean they're right. And so we must have a standard by which we can compare our emotions to, which we said as children of God must be God's word. And so that's kind of where we finished off last week was saying we must take every emotion and hold it up against God's word and say, is it real? Yes, but is it right? And so we should only act upon those which are right. And so tonight I want to discuss two specific emotions and talk about strategies on how we can control them biblically. So those two emotions are fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety. And so as we move into uh, number one, let's look at fear. Let's define fear tonight. It's an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat or a threat. 66 times in the Bible, God specifically says, fear not or fear thou not. Fear is not something clearly that God wants us to have or something that God wants us to do. There's two types of fear, however, that we need to kind of get out of the way before we discuss. And I'm going to define them this way. There's the fear of the Lord and there's a spirit of fear. Now, one of them is very healthy and one of them is very unhealthy. One of them is a very positive thing. One of them is a very negative thing. The fear of the Lord is a positive thing. In fact, it's something that's commanded by and encouraged in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse number 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And Proverbs 14, 26 says, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. It's interesting to me that we can have strong confidence in fear. That seems like a contradiction to me. But when we, it's not when we understand what the fear of the Lord really is. The Bible uses the word fear. We can also use the word respect or awe or reverence. The idea of the fear of the Lord, when you see that in Scripture, is the idea that we would have a proper respect for God, His power, and His position in our lives. This summer, we're going through a series uh, through Proverbs with the teenagers. And one of our first principles we talked about was fearing the Lord. And I use kind of a, a mental picture when we talk about fear of the Lord, helping us to understand that. And that idea was Niagara Falls. Now, I, I assume most of you have been to Niagara Falls. It's a pretty amazing place. Um, when I think of Niagara Falls, however, I don't think of a place that gives me nightmares. <laughs> it's not a place that keeps me up at night. And I think you'd probably say the same. But I think you'd also be honest enough to say that you do have a fear for Niagara Falls. When you go to Niagara Falls, you don't get too close. You wouldn't jump over. You have a healthy respect for the power and the awe which is Niagara Falls, right? And it's the same sort of thing with God in our life. It's not that we fear him as in the fact that he causes us to be scared or afraid, but it's the idea that we have a real respect for his power, his sovereignty, and his position in our life, that we would keep him first overall. You know, God is an omnipotent God, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. He's an almighty God. He's sovereign. And understanding that and living in light of that, that's the fear of the Lord. But there's also a second type of fear, which is the spirit of fear. And that's the kind of fear we're going to talk about for the majority of our time together tonight. 
You know, the Bible says in 2 Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so one fear, the fear of the Lord, is a very healthy, encouraged by scripture type of a fear. The second is one that we see clearly right away is not from God. This is a fear that's not supposed to be in our life, a fear that's not given by God. It's a spirit of fear. The idea of a spirit of fear is that it kind of permeates through our whole life. It it, kind of goes into every area of our life and it cripples us. It causes us to be disobedient to God's word. It causes doubt and disobedience. So we see that it's not from God. So where is this spirit of fear from? I would suggest to you tonight that the, the spirit of fear is from the devil, God's enemy and our enemy. And sometimes we can do things to cause the spirit of fear in our own lives, but I would say that it's from the devil. I find it interesting when we look at the devil, sometimes the Bible uses uh, different animal names to refer to the devil. Think about the animal names that we commonly think of for the devil. Ready? First in Genesis, we see him as a serpent. How many of you are scared of snakes? My hand is raised, right? Oftentimes, snakes are an animal that bring forth fear. Secondly, we see him in Revelation as a dragon, not necessarily the, uh, you know, the nicest animal or the nicest picture of a fire-breathing, angry dragon. Again, something that's supposed to bring forth an emotion of fear. And lastly, we see him in 1 Peter as a roaring lion. Now, we just took the teens last weekend to African Lion Safari. Had a great time. It was awesome. We did the, uh, the tour of the animal reserves. We got to see some lions. Got to see some white lions. It was pretty sweet. But I got to be honest. I'm very thankful that I was in the safety of a sealed bus. I'm glad I wasn't walking through the lion's den. I'm glad I didn't have to face the lion. And I'm glad it wasn't roaring. Because that would bring forth fear. And the Bible calls the devil a roaring lion. When we think about facing fear, maybe you've heard this lots of times before, that there's kind of two natural reactions that our body has. We could call them fight or flight, right? You've heard of that before? And so if you think about that experience with a lion, probably one of those two natural reactions would come up in your body. I can remember as a kid, we used to go to this place, I don't know if you've heard of it or not, it's called the Kilman Zoo. It was not too far from where we grew up in Hamilton. And I don't know how this place was, was legal. It, it very well may not have been. <laughs> but it was basically just a farmer's field. He turned his whole field into a zoo. I don't know how he got the animals. I don't know if he had the permits and if he did how he got them. But I can remember there was this one sort of like this outdoor corridor, corridor built by the cages. And he got to the end. And this is my memory as a younger child. But there was a, li- a cage with a lion in front of us and a cage with a lion on the right, and a cage with a lion on the left. And the signs on the side said, stay a certain distance, I forget what the distance was, but stay a certain a distance back from the lion. But if you were to back up from the one on the right, or on the left, you'd, you'd almost be touching the cage on the right. There wasn't enough space to stay far enough away from the lions. And, and I'm like, we should not be here. We should run. This is not safe for us to be here. It was such a sketchy thing. But in that moment, coming face to face with a lion... Fight or flight. Our body usually gives us two options. Now, I know I'm a pretty big guy, but I don't want to fight a lion. And I don't think you do either. And so our choice then is to run, is to, is to flee. But look at what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse number 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist? Steadfast, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren 
that are in the world. The Bible's response to verse 9, which we don't always read, is that we should not run from the lion. We should not run from the devil. When he roars his angry head and tries to scare us with fears of this world, we should not run, but rather resist. When I think of resist, I think of somebody who's pushing back, who's fighting against, who's holding their ground. You guys see how that's totally contrary to what the, our body tells us to do? In the face of fear, our body tells us run, 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 flee. But the Bible says, no, 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 resist, fight. How? How can we stand up in the face of a roaring lion and fight? That's the question. How can we face our fears? If you don't get anything else this, this evening, you need to get this statement. We must fight fear with faith in God's promises. We must fight fear with faith in God's promises. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to Isaiah 41.10? We're turning to a couple passages tonight, so I hope you'll keep your Bibles handy with you, especially later in the, the lesson tonight. Isaiah 41.10, I'd just like to read one verse. In this text, the children of Israel are facing fears due to the rise of the Babylonians and the po political and national threats around them. They're facing a captivity. And in Isaiah chapter 41, God is speaking to his children. It's, it's written from the perspective of God who's speaking to the children of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, near to the, close to the center of this passage, he says this, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God's message to his children in the time of fear there are real threats all around them, kind of like standing in the middle of those cages of lions. He's saying, hey, here is my promise to you. Here's my response. He gives them promises to hold on to. He gives them promises to have faith in. And God gives us promises, a whole book of promises, that we should have faith in in the face of our fear. There's three specific promises that we see in Isaiah chapter 41.10. And the number one promise we see, first of all, is this. God promises his presence. He promises his presence. It says there in Isaiah 41, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. It makes me think of being a kid. We're always less scared to do things when you have somebody with you, even now. Right? If you're going to a new situation, you want to have a friend, someone that you are comfortable around, someone you can rely on. I can remember as a kid playing hide-and-go-seek, you'd want to hide with your friends so you didn't get scared halfway through the game, right? So you just have someone to be with. We're always less scared when we have somebody there with us, when we can face our situations with someone by our side. We know that God promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. As a Christian, as a child of God, we have the Holy Spirit living in, in us. We have God's presence and God's power with us at all times. However, sometimes it's hard to have faith in that. It's hard for us to have faith in things that we do not see and sometimes that we do not feel. It, it just is. When I'm thinking about trying myself to live in light of the fact that God is always with me, I almost find myself being skeptical, saying, sure, that sounds good. Yeah, we know God is always with us. His presence never leaves us. He's, you know, he, he's living within us. We have his spirit it sounds good, but it would be nice if I actually had somebody with me all the time. That was one of my original thought. I think maybe you could identify with that, but how foolish 
for me to value the presence of somebody in flesh more than the presence of God's spirit? What does it say that we really believe about God and how powerful he is on this earth if we would value a physical presence in the face of our fears more than the presence of the creator God of the universe? And so it's not that his presence or his promise of his presence is silly or that it's not powerful. It's simply the fact that sometimes we just don't have faith in it. But God says this, hey, don't be afraid, Israel. Fear not. I am with thee. He promises to always be with us. The second promise that he makes the children of Israel and he makes to us is this. He promises his provision. It says there in Isaiah chapter 41.10, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. You know, it's not like God is saying, hey, I'm always going to be with you. I will be there, the innocent bystander. I will be there, the witness. I'll be there to watch no matter what you're going through. No, no, he's saying, I'm not only just going to be there, but I'm coming to help. I'm coming to support. He uses the very word help. I'm coming to, to be there for you, to help you. I'm coming to strengthen you. You know, that word uphold is the same word we see when Moses leads the children of Israel into the battle with the Amalekites. Now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this story. Uh, God promises a victory to Moses as long as his hands are in the air. But as his hands begin to fall, then the children of Israel begin to lose the battle. And so we know that uh, two of Moses' family and friends come alongside him, Aaron and Hur. And what do they do? The Bible says that they stayed up the hands of, of Moses. They lifted up his hands. They, they helped him. They encouraged him. They upheld his hands. And God was able to give them the victory. That's the exact same word God is using here when he says, I am coming to uphold you. When you feel afraid, when you feel discouraged, when you feel like you have no more strength, when you feel like you can't do it on your own, which newsflash, we can't. He's coming to uphold us. He's coming to help. It makes me think of the help program. Uh, a lot of you would remember this, I'm sure. They used to have signs on the help program. They put out of the edge of the road and they said, help is here. Remember those, like a sandwich board? Letting everyone know, hey, help us here. We're here to help. We're here in the community. It's like God is coming into our problems, into our situations. He's putting down a sandwich board that says, help is here. I'm not just here to help, uh, stand by. I'm not just here to watch. I'm here to help you. I'm here to uphold you. I'm here to strengthen you. It's that same phrase that is literally used to define the Holy Spirit. Parakletos is the Greek word. It means this to come alongside of, to encourage, to help, to advocate for. And that's what God is saying. Hey, in fact, he literally sent us the Holy Spirit, the comforter, to come alongside us and to help us and to encourage us. And there's one last promise he makes, and really the other two promises are rooted in this one. He promises this, his person. Right in the middle of that verse, Isaiah 41.10, look what it says. He says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. He said, like, hey, just in case you forget, in case you start to doubt that I have the power to help you, in case you start to doubt that I will be with you, never forget that I am God. And not only am I God, but I'm thy God. I'm your God. I will be with you. I'm, om I'm omnipresent. I do have power to help. I'm omniscient. I know all things. I'm omnipotent, right? I'm almighty. I'm sovereign. I'm in control, and I'm your God. It's like God is saying this. Hey, child of, 
hey, my, he's saying to you, also, his children, hey, I'm God, I'm here, and I'm helping. And those are the promises that he gives us, promises that we can hold to, promises that we must have faith in. If you will, turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter number four. I want to look at a biblical example of this in Mark. Mark chapter number four. We'll read a few verses, starting in verse number 35 of Mark chapter four. Mark 4, 35, the Bible says this. And the same day, when the even was come, he said unto them, let us pass over unto the other side. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship, and there, also, there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Jesus himself had just given them a promise. Hey, we're going over to the other side. He had just given them a promise. We're going over. Well, they can count on God's word, right? They can have faith in the promises of God. Yet the second they get out onto the water, they begin to get more focused on the circumstances, the fears, the troubles, the worries, the winds and the waves of this life, and they get their eyes off of the promises of God, and they get their eyes on their problems. And they can't see Jesus now. He's in the hinder part of the ship. He's sleeping. He's not around. And they begin to doubt his promises. Jesus had given them a promise, but fear had caused them to forget. Never let your fear cause you to forget or doubt the promises of God. It's been said, don't doubt in the night what God gave you in the light. And it's true. It's one thing to know the promises of God. It's another thing to have faith in them in the face of fear. But it's important for us to know as well, we cannot fight fears with faith in God's promises if we do not know God's promises. That is why it's so important for us to know and to love and to memorize and to have a handle of God's word. We can't trust in something in which we don't know. We can't have faith in something in which we've never learned. And so we must know God's word. Pastor J.D. Greer said this. It's a longer quote, but I put it up on the screen. Doubt reveals those places that you have shrunk God down to your size. Doubts can help you to see where you have put expectations on God that arise out of what you think he should do rather than what he said he would do. Sometimes we start to doubt God because we expect him to get us out of a situation that he pr never promised to get us out of. You see that? But if we know what God has promised us, then we can have faith in what God promised us. It makes me think of John the Baptist sitting in prison, sending out to Jesus messengers saying, hey, are you really the Messiah? Because you, you said you were here to save us, but I'm sitting here in prison. I'm the forerunner of God. I'm supposed to come before you. I, I've tried to serve you, and now I'm here in prison. And you're out healing other people and saving other people and making you know, uh, the lame walk and the blind see. What about me? And Jesus sends a message back to John the Baptist, and in theory what he says is this. He says, hey, you're having faith in a promise that I never gave you. He said, don't doubt that I'm the, I'm, I'm the Messiah. He said, I'm here. I'm doing what I said to do. I'm healing the blind. I'm, uh, I'm healing the sick. I'm causing the blind to see. He's saying, I'm, I, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm doing exactly what I said I would do. But we start to doubt when we have faith in something that we think God should do rather than faith in what God said and promised he would do. And so 
Don't fight your fears with belief in what you think God should do. Fight your fears with faith in what God promised to do. We must fight our fears with faith in God's promises. That's the way to overcome our fear in the face of fear. And so we see fear number one, but secondly, we move into the idea of anxiety. The Bible uses the word care a lot when it's talking about anxiety. It uses the word anxious some, but, but when it's talking about anxiety, oftentimes it'll use that word care. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's the idea of being anxious or worried. Maybe you're thinking, now, why are we talking about them as two different things because they're the same? Now, they are very similar, I have to give you that. And, and the feeling and the emotion that we get from fear and anxiety are very, very similar. They bring forth a very similar situation. And I do believe that anxiety is probably the biggest reason why Christians are caught living in a spirit of fear. It's because of anxiety. But here's what I believe the difference to be. Fear is an emotion that's rooted in a real physical threat, where anxiety is rooted in the possibility of one. Anxiety causes us to take on the worries of tomorrow today. Here's, here's the difference. Fear is that feeling you get when you hit a patch of black ice and your car is spinning towards the ditch. That's fear. Anxiety is the feeling you get when you don't know if you can drive tomorrow because you're afraid it might happen again. And so anxiety is oftentimes more, more powerful than our fear because it keeps us in that cycle, keeps us living in a spirit of fear. It doesn't allow us to break free, to have victory. We could define anxiety moving forward like this. It's a present emotion of fear produced by the uncertainty of the future. It's an emotion that we feel right now. It's something that feels real and visceral. We feel it today, but the problem that's giving us that emotion is something that may or may not even happen in the future. That's why I said it's taking on tomorrow's worries today. Uh, both fear and anxiety are both very real and are very crippling. Here's what anxiety causes us to do. It causes us to forget the truth. See, the disciples were afraid of very real winds and waves. But sometimes in our life, what we can do is we can create our own wind and waves, create our own storm, create our own worries and our own issues that, that aren't necessarily real. We say things like this, I'll never be able to pass that exam. I'll, I'll never be able to do it. Why should I bother take it? I've tried before, I've, I, I can't do it. I'll never get that promotion at work. My boss is gonna tell me he doesn't value me or I'm not good enough and so why should I even bother? I won't get it. My children cannot be safe unless I'm with them. Uh, in the world we live in, something's going to happen to them. Flying is so dangerous, I will never get on a plane, right? Everyone will be watching me or judging me, so I'll never be able to serve the Lord or stand up and sing in church or give that presentation at work. Uh, something's going to mess up. People are going to make fun of me. Now, none of these things have actually happened here, but they've all caused me to feel that emotion. They've all caused me to be stuck in a cycle of the spirit of fear. It's been said this. The most important conversation you'll ever have is the conversation you have with yourself every day. We're constantly having a conversation with ourselves from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. And oftentimes people who struggle with anxiety are just rehearsing the terrible possibilities of what could be. Anxiety asks the question, what if? What if? What if this were, go to wrong, go, were to go wrong? What if this scenario was to play out this way? Anxiety constantly asks the question, what if? Self-talking, talking to ourselves, causes these fantasized fears to become our new reality. 
because we're constantly thinking of them, constantly having the conversation with ourselves, we get caught up in a reality where what we've imagined to be true is now true. It's consumed our whole day, and because we've had a conversation with ourselves. You say, how can we break the cycle? How can we get out of this cycle, this spirit of fear? We must learn to speak truth to ourselves. Speak truth to yourselves. The Bible says that David actually preached to himself. And David encouraged himself. We, we can do that. We can preach to ourselves. We can speak truth to ourselves. We can rewrite the conversation that takes place every day in our brain. You know, the Bible says things about anxiety like this. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, the Bible is full of truths that can help us to understand our fears, to overcome our anxiety, but if we don't speak them to ourselves, we allow the narrative in our brain to take over. We allow the what if to take over, the questions, the fears of the future, and we paint ourselves a reality that just isn't true. We must speak truth to ourselves. And maybe you're thinking at this point again, Okay, so the answer to fighting our fear is having faith in God's promises. And the answer to fighting anxiety is speaking truth to yourselves. This all sounds good. In theory, it's great. Yes, we know we should know the Bible. We should read the Bible. It just kind of seems like a pat answer. It doesn't seem very practical. And I myself sometimes fall into that same thinking pattern. We know we should read the Bible. We, we get it, right? We've been in church for years. We know that. But it's not actually... How can I actually have victory? How can I actually overcome? I would argue this mostly to myself, that knowing and reading and memorizing and speaking God's word to ourselves is the most practical help in our spiritual life we could ever do. Oftentimes in my own life and maybe in yours, the reason that we don't have faith in the power and effectiveness of God's word in our life is because it's been too long since we've experienced it. God's word doesn't seem to have any effect on us whether that be through the preaching, whether that through the, be through the reading. It seems like it's had no effect on our life for maybe months, maybe years. And so it's easy for us to say, yeah, yeah, read God's word, good, 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 but we don't feel like it's making any effect. So we say, no, I want real answers because I have real problems. Well, maybe it's, the problem is that we just aren't getting, aren't experiencing the truth of the real answer. You say, why, why aren't we experiencing it? Please turn with me if you would to Luke chapter number 8. Luke chapter number 8. I want to read a little bit of a longer passage, but we're coming down towards the end, and I think it'll be a real help to us. We'll read two different passages in Luke, but we'll start in Luke chapter number 8. We're going to start in verse number 4. The Bible says this in Luke 8, 4. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down. And the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell upon good ground and sprang up and bare fruit an hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? 
And he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to other parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they might not understand. Now the parable is this, and here's where he explains it to us. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. They on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. And look at verse 14 with me. And that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. I would argue that the reason, according to this parable, the word of God is not effective to us in overcoming our fears and anxieties is because we've allowed the cares of this world to choke out the truth of God's word. Don't allow the cares of this world to choke out the truth of God's word. And so maybe for you, it's the very first thing mentioned in verse 14. They were choked with cares. Maybe for you, it's riches or the pleasures of God's word. But those who struggle with anxiety, it's the cares of this world. God's word is effective until we allow it to be choked by the weeds of care. By we allow, until we get our focus off of God and his word and his principles and its power and we start worrying about things around us. The what ifs start to come in and next thing you know the power of God's word is squelched, is eaten up, it's cut away by the weeds of the cares of this life. And it's interesting what it says. It says they bring forth no fruit. What do we say in Galatians chapter number five? But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, Goodness, faith, meekness, here's this one, temperance, against such there is no law. Maybe the reason we're struggling with joy and peace and temperance, self-control and meekness and faith in God's word is because the cares of this life have choked out the power of God's word and so we're experiencing no fruit, no spiritual fruit, the fruit of the spirit. And that's why it feels like we've been reading God's word. We've been going to church, but it's not making a difference because there's no spiritual fruit because the cares of this world have choked it out. That's why it's so important to prepare our hearts when we come before the Lord to church, before we read our Bibles, because we have to cut away and take away, just get our minds off the cares of this world. As we sit in church and all we can do is focus on what's, what's wrong at home or at work, all we're doing is allowing the cares of this life to choke out the power of of God's word. And not only can it choke out our spiritual fruit, as in like the fruits of the spirit, but turn with me to Luke chapter number 12. And this is where we'll close tonight. Luke chapter number 12. Look at verse number 22. The Bible says, And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall put on. The life is more than me, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do the thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow cast in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, 
Neither be of a doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. There's another type of fruit that we can bear forth in our spiritual life. And that's the fruit of winning souls. Bringing people to a relationship with Jesus Christ, right? And I think it's amazing what it says there in verse number 30. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. You know what the nations of the world right now in 2019 are seeking after? Exactly what it says in the Bible. Peace, riches, right? Uh, provision for their family, a roof over their heads, uh, a way to adorn them like the lilies, a way to have uh, success and peace and security and riches and joy. And he says, hey, the children of God shouldn't seek after that stuff. Children of God should seek after the kingdom of God and say that if you're not better than the lilies and the ravens, don't, don't you think he'll take care of you? That's what the nations of this world are worried about. The nations of this world are caught up in anxieties and worries and cares, not the children of God. It's not supposed to be that way. The world is not interested in a God who promises peace if they don't see peace in you. What kind of testimony does it share to the world? And I'm not downing anybody who struggles with anxiety at all. Because it's a real struggle just as if anyone would struggle with any type of a sin. But we ought to know as children of God that it's one thing to say that we believe in a God of peace. But if we don't demonstrate in our our life, what picture do we paint of God, right? It's like asking someone to join the family of God when it's a dysfunctional family. There, there's no joy. There's no peace. There ought to be a difference between you and your coworkers, between you and your unsafe family. There ought to be a peace that passes understanding. The world is not interested in a God who promises peace if they don't see that peace in you. If you have no fruit in your life, whether the spiritual fruit of Galatians chapter 5, love, joy, peace, faith, meekness, goodness, temperance, or if there's no fruit in your life as far as leading people to Christ or being a good testimony or witness, there's a good chance that you're allowing either the cares of this life, the riches of this life, or the pleasures of this life to choke out God's word and its power and effectiveness in our hearts. And so that's how we can deal with our anxieties, is to speak truth to ourselves. And how can we deal with our fears? Is to fight it with faith and God's promises. When the devil comes in our life like a roaring lion, casting fear, the tendency is to run. But God says, no, whom resist? Fight your fear with faith in God's promises. He promises his presence. He promises provision. And he promises his person. He says, I will be our God. We cannot fight fear with faith in God's promises if we do not know God's promises. Get to know God's promises. We sing that song, standing on the promises. We cannot stand on the truths that we don't know. Self-talking can cause fantasized fears to become our own reality. But speaking truth to ourselves can break the cycle and cause us to focus on what God has promised to us. Remember that the world is not interested in a God who promises peace if they don't see peace in you. And so I hope tonight that something has been a help to you in learning how to handle, to control, to fight the emotions of fear and anxiety. This is not a comprehensive study uh, by any means. And um, I'm not an expert and we don't have a ton of time, but I did find a lot of great resources. And so if you have more questions or would like to uh, you know, dig deeper into this topic, please come and see me. Um, I'd be happy to share with you podcasts, books, articles, anything that I can to, that I think would be a help to you that's been a help to me in studying this topic. 
um, a look into where we're going next week as we finish up. Next week, we're going to be talking about specifically joy and anger. Joy and anger. And so uh, controlling our anger and learning about that biblically and then also how to live a life of biblical joy. That's kind of the two that we're going to look at. I understand there are tons of emotions that we could take a deep, deep dive on, but these are the four that I'm going to kind of uh, zero in on. And then the last week, week number four, we're going to be talking about the church's role and response to mental health. Mental health is obviously uh, something that's very uh, common today. That's a, a huge issue for many people today. And so we want to look at what the church's role is, what's a biblical response, and, and what's our role in mental health today in 2019. And so, again, I like to say I hope this was a help to you. My desire in this series, as I said last week, was to be twofold. Number one, biblical, and number two, practical. And so I hope that was for you. If you have any questions about anything I said, please, I'll hang out after we're done a little early. I'd be happy to answer them for you. Uh, but we'll have a word of prayer here. And then uh, we'll be dismissed. Thank you again for coming.